0: the United States declared war on Great Britain. It continued for about three years and ended with no territorial change. That much is undisputed. But which side you believe won the conflict, or even whether you've heard of it before, says a lot about your national identity. Opinions can range anywhere from a meaningless backwater theater of the Napoleonic Wars to a defining part of your founding mythology. But what actually happened in North America in 1812? Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Colin Oliver. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about the War of 1812. Yes. Colin, what do you know about the War of 1812?
1: Well, uh, when we settled on this topic, I was trying to think back to everything I learned in school, Mm -hmm. and I didn't even get so far as remembering whether it was high school or public school.
0: It depends on the course, but usually public school, yeah. Yeah. Yeah so i'm gonna go with not that much not that much um but it just sort of in broad strokes, what do you know about it uh, I think uh uh one or more white houses may
1: have been burned down okay i, I have got that sure uh the the war was between uh america and uh-huh. and the the then British Canada huh I don't even know why right
0: like it's it's very, very hazy, right. I find that in general, at least like culturally speaking, the War of 1812 gets like thrown around a lot as this really important thing without a lot of explanation as to why or even what happened. I realized as I was going through my notes that I left out one of the most important Canadian cultural touchstones, Laura Secord. Uh, who, you know, I, we're not even going to bother. She's not important enough to the story, but basically <laughs> she's a uh, she was a British settler who uh, overheard some battle plans and, uh, you know, trekked through the wilds of upstate New York to take them to some British commanders and help them win a battle uh, and now has a very famous line of chocolate named after her.
1: <laughs> I, I was waiting for it to get to the chocolate. That's how most
0: Canadians know her, yes. Yeah. Um... <laughs> but there's, yeah, there's this, there's this important put on it. I think partially because... Culturally speaking, Canadians tend to compare themselves so much to the United States, and it's it's sort of hard not to. They're kind of a cultural juggerna- a juggernaut, and we're right next door. But it's it's interesting because one one of the things I found when going when going over this topic was that your perception of who won the war actually depends on where you're from. Yeah. Anytime
1: um, I've spoken with anybody from the states about this, they yeah. what they won right and are taught that they won. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the general vibe here is that we won mm-hmm. and then I, even saying we there is kind of anyway, right. That's a whole
0: different <laughs> kettle of fish. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, um, let's, let's, let's divert a tiny bit. This is not a topic that you were expecting to talk about today and that's okay. Um, have you ever seen, uh, have you ever seen the movie Rashomon? I have not. 1950 Akira Kurosawa classic. Uh, do you know what Rashomon is? Yes. Again, one of those cultural touchstones that you don't necessarily need to know specifics about to understand the general vibe of. So Rashomon is the story of a, um, for lack of a better word, trial of uh, the murder of, of a samurai. And, you know, there's a bunch of other stuff that goes into it. But the the movie is told from a number of different perspectives, uh, including from the, the spirit of the samurai is told through a medium. It's a really creepy sequence. But the point of Rashomon is that you get three or four different versions of the story, none of which are really that reliable because everyone telling the story has an agenda and a very clear one at that. And we're never actually told what really happened at the end of the story. You're sort of left with this um, sense of unfulfillment, this, uh, this vagueness as to what the actual events were. And I couldn't help but continually think about Rashomon the entire time I read about the War of 1812 preparing for this episode because it... Not only feels like everyone has a different version of this story, but almost like each player in this story is living through a completely different series of events uh, and working through different motivations without really understanding why the other ones are doing what they're doing. And it, it's very, very odd. It's, it's very uh, cross-purposes. Normally when two or more powers go to war, there's a fairly clear question as to why they're going to war, right? Uh, one party wants to do something and the other one doesn't want them to do it is generally how that shakes out. Right. War of 1812, not so much. Now that I've set up all this very like vague uh, uh, sort of um, hinting at what might be going on, I'm going to step right away from 1812, and I think we should probably start with the events leading up to 1812 and and take a pretty good run at it because this is a period of North American history that aside from one major event, I feel like doesn't get a lot of service. And conveniently I did up until the year 1763, uh, with Gary when we talked about new France, at least from a a British perspective. and, And that's going to cover the vast majority of what we need to know for the war of 1812. So this is one where I would maybe suggest people go and listen back, but we'll do our best to cover it off anyways. Perfect. Um, There was uh, what was known in North America as the Seven Years' War, or in the United States, sometimes known as the French and Indian War, in which the British uh, defeated French settlers in North America uh, fairly decisively. And in this Treaty of Paris, 1763, they ceded basically all of their territory in North America to the British. This is how um, Quebec comes under British dominion. And part of that deal was that the Québécois got a lot of protections for things like their language and religion, uh, even their systems of law that were pretty important to them because, you know, that's the sort of things that they were fighting for in the first place. And having assurances from the British government that they could keep all of those things made for much happier French settlers. You know, thinking of of the general relationship between French and English Canada today, you might actually be kind of surprised as to how happy these French settlers were under British dominion at least uh, once the the shock of warfare had worn off. Right. Not everyone was happy with the outcome of of, uh, this war. Um, Specifically... And, and this is one of the things that was really fascinating about New France for me was the amount of political agency that uh, Native Americans have in all of this. They're very much uh, a third party, sort of, in, in that, you know, they're not terribly well organized, they're very individualistic, but Native American forces uh, very much played off the French and English troops, forming alliances with them as was convenient for them, trying to keep as much territory for themselves and, and trying to preserve their way of life as well as possible. When... The treaty went through in 1763. There was actually a, a, an uprising uh, led by um, Pontiac, a, a, an Ottawa chief. And Pontiac's rebellion was basically designed to uh, prevent a, a large swath of land in what would now be uh, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, sort of that, that region of the what we call Midwest now, but what they would refer to as the Old Northwest. It was it was to guarantee rights uh, for uh, native tribes in that region. Um, the British had promised them uh, some level of, of autonomy in that in that area, uh, and then turned around and started sort of walking it back as quickly as possible. And right. um, while Pontiac's Rebellion wasn't necessarily successful, it was more of a stalemate. Uh, he he set a siege to Fort Detroit and didn't manage to take it, but kept them there for a long, long time it at least established them as a force in the area, right? That there's somebody to be reckoned with. You can't just go and yank their land away and call it a day, and then they're going to roll over and take it. right? The settlers in what would become the United States, though, weren't necessarily terribly happy about it. The problem there being that certain territories or certain colonies were incorporated in this way that was, I think when you look at the wording, probably more meant to be kind of, Flowery than anything else, than necessarily being taken seriously. Mm. But the settlers took it very seriously in that they were incorporated basically from the Atlantic coast as far west as it goes. There's a there's a straight line from the north uh, border of the colony and the south border of the colony, all the way west. And the problem with this uh, old Northwest Territory is that it blocked several of these territories from actually stretching all the way across the continent, and they didn't like that very much. Right. In fact. This, uh, this territory existing there uh, ended up being considered one of the Intolerable Acts, um, which include uh, other actions by the British government like the the Stamp Act and the uh, Tea Act that would eventually be cited as the reasons for um, the, the American Revolution. Uh, th- this was included in them. They were very unhappy about it. Which brings me to the next point in my little list of things that lead up to War of 1812, which is the American Revolution. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's probably got enough meat on those bones to do an entire topic uh, it's at something. some point. And it's
1: something I don't know very much about.
0: Sure. As you were talking, I'm like, wait a minute. When did America become a thing? Sure. So the the Revolutionary War, sort of the, the official dates on the on the warfare part itself, uh, is about 1775 to 1783 so really not that long after the end of the the seven years war you're only talking 12 years later there were some overtures made towards quebec to join the 13 colonies in revolution um and this is a question i get every once in a while is 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 why didn't canada or what would become canada join in the american revolution obviously there's more than just quebec that that was uh that existed at the time there was also um specifically Nova Scotia. Um, there were small outposts in Newfoundland, a few other uh, really small territories. But, you know, Nova Scotia was almost entirely Halifax, which is the largest British uh, naval base in North America. So the chances of a revolution being successful there are virtually none. And the Quad didn't want to be part of the United
1: States. Well, it sounded like they were actually kind of happy
0: the the united states to them represented status quo minus all of the guarantees that their way of life would be uh would 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 be protected right here's just a new empire being set up kind of a thing Mm -hmm. so you've got the british who you've got these very clearly laid out treaties that say you may speak french you may practice catholicism which there was a virulent anti-Catholic sentiment in the 13 colonies during the revolution, um, foreign powers and whatnot, the, the whole, you know, threat of papism, etc. cetera. And, and, and the, the legal code was an important thing to them. They were, they were practicing uh, French civil law, And actually continue to uh to this day uh there if you were ever charged with a civil uh, violation in uh, in quebec it's actually uh based on the napoleonic code uh rather than british common law
1: which i remember from a previous episode i was on that guy may
0: be coming up once or twice more (laughs) fair enough the the americans on the other hand uh, were very insistent that they break as many ties with Britain as possible, and it was feared that rather than being a majority in the you know, the province of Quebec, um, the, the colony of Quebec, where they could practice their preferred way of life, they would be just one of many states in this new American uh, confederacy, if, if this is even successful right? Um, so if it's successful, they become a, a, an ethnic minority within the United States. And that doesn't seem like a very safe position, because they have absolutely no guarantees. And if it's a failure, I mean, your absolute best case scenario is that the the British leave everything the way it is. But chances are, they're probably going to want to punish you in some way. Yeah. And one of the more likely ways is that they're going to take away all those cultural guarantees while still expecting you to be a British citizen or, or subject, I suppose, is a little more accurate. So the Québécois have zero incentive to join the revolution. Was there anyone
1: in other parts of Canada at the time, or was it just not that populated?
0: I mean, Quebec really extended down through what is now southwestern Ontario and, um, after the Pontiac Rebellions, uh, really into that old Northwest territory that was incorporated into the Quebec uh, colony, which sort of uh, legitimized the government in that area. Before that, it was sort of just uh, British uh, outposts and almost entirely inhabited by Native Americans and and really subsisted on the fur trade. Other than that, you have a few small outposts, again, to support the fur trading industry mainly. So uh, a couple up on... Um, Uh, Hudson's Bay sort of the the Prince Rupert's land what would become the Northwest Territories was kind of British territory at this point um more held by British uh businessmen but not really settled in any meaningful way yeah anything outside of the you know along the St. Lawrence River really not settled because it wasn't very inhabitable land and you know in, in a lot of ways still isn't fair enough yeah yeah yeah
1: as we enjoy this blustery winter weather. Honestly, so
0: done with it. When the, uh, when the war, when the Revolutionary War ended in 1783, um, American victory, by the way, just in case you were wondering, uh, the old Northwest was actually ceded to the United States as part of the terms of the Paris Treaty of 1783. So basically the border between Canada and the United States and the Great Lakes region was more or less set at this point in time. Not exactly, but, but close enough for our purposes. Um, and so that anyone listening looks at a map, you'll, you'll more or less get the idea. This wasn't necessarily popular with the, uh, Native American population of the old Northwest. Let's be real. No one was really treating them terribly well. And they had probably been best treated by the French when you're ranking Europeans. And even then, you know, there, there's some seriously questionable things going on but they at least traded with them as more or less equal political entity rather right. than just sort of subjects which is the way the rest tended to treat them yeah. um the british were a next best thing especially uh since uh a very a very terrible uh british general who had done a lot of damage just after the treaties were signed had uh, had finally left the region and things had calmed down somewhat cornwallis he's just a monster of a man i feel like i know that name um he's the only confirmed incident that we know of of somebody using smallpox blankets yeah he's he's the one that like started that whole myth great he didn't come up with the idea but somebody came to him with it and he approved it he loved it thought it was a very good idea so he's just a real upstanding guy Mm mm-hmm the Native Americans preferred to deal with the British over the Americans at this point. They found that, in their zeal to break with Britain, they tended to break a lot of treaties that Britain had set up with the Native Americans. Not to say that this is, you know, wholesale the, the case, but specifically in the Old Northwest, they had tended to uh, ally with the British and, um, you know, tribes from from other areas that had uh, allied with uh, with the United States during the Revolutionary War the various nations that lived in the old Northwest at this time generally preferred working with the British. And the fact that the British basically sold off their land to the United States was really a a blow to their, uh, their trust in the British. And they were very unhappy with the whole arrangement. So in um, 1785, there's the outbreak of something that's known. It's usually known as the, the, the Northwest Indian war, um i say that because there isn't actually like an official name on the books anywhere because it wasn't actually considered an official military action by the United States army hmm. really what it is is um all of these troops refused to accept american dominion um there are also some british troops still hanging around in the area they just didn't leave even though they had technically given up the area but like it's really hard to enforce that in a in a territory that size and while they had military forts what's a bunch of american settlers going to do anyways. Right. Generally most of the uh most of the american colonies had settled basically as far west as the appalachian mountains. And they had sort of left the area between the Appalachians and the Mississippi as kind of we'll we'll let the native americans settle there. But almost immediately after the revolution was over, there were very uh eager settlers who were who were uh interested in that land it looks very good it looked very fertile yeah excellent farming land good settlement (laughs) (laughs) um so a lot of this uh a lot of this warfare involved various uh native nations turning up one day and realizing that somebody has just started building on their land and trying to drive them off and then these people going whoa 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 i was nearly massacred by indians us government you got to do something about this what we have here is a very poor understanding uh, between the united states and various native uh, tribes as to just how these tribes are organized and what sort of legal standing they have in this area
1: did they like make deals with
0: people who weren't actually the people who they should have been making deals with or so let's say that one day Aliens come down and they land in front of an apartment building and somebody walks out of the apartment and the aliens say, hey, this is a great building. It's huge. It's tall. It's shining and reflective. Uh, I am going to give you a million space bucks for this building. And that person goes, sure. Okay. Yeah. And then everyone else in the apartment building goes, what are you doing? This is, this is my home. And the aliens go, I gave the guy the space bucks. This is my building now. Right this is basically what's happening here. Um, There are a lot of diverse political entities in this area. They don't always see eye to eye. A lot of them have been forced into this area already off of their ancestral lands by previous movements by um, settlers. They're not necessarily one cohesive unit. But if the U.S. government can find someone who appears to be qualified to make a deal and they make a deal with them, they will hold all residents of this area to that deal. Right? That's not really how that should be working. No, but you know, it, it, it's not as though we're, we're past the era where you get the usual sort of stereotypical stories of like selling off Manhattan for a couple of beads and blah, blah, blah. Um, it, it's, it's not quite that level. They do uh, the, the, the native, um, nations do have a better understanding of how the europeans operate than that but it's very much a divide and conquer sort of thing you you go and you ask one tribe and they say never this is our home we would never sell it you go okay and you go on to the next one and see if they will if you get one good enough the natives generally fought well uh once the military got involved um but ran into some issues with harsh winters you know supply problems um when the winters are particularly bad and you had a particularly poor uh, uh crop that summer, uh you you can't be fighting when you're hunting for subsistence and, and that tended to cramp quite a bit. And yeah, the uh the the war really didn't end up, you know, turning out in their favor. Sorry, war air quotes. Yeah, war air quotes. Um the 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 residents of the old Northwest certainly saw it that way. 1789 just a quick interlude we'll check in with europe see how they're doing uh-oh it's the french revolution oh no one of the largest uh, historical events uh of western history um so that's gonna be that's gonna occupy some folks for a while just thought i'd check in there real quick <laughs> we also spoke uh, briefly about the french revolution when we talked about napoleon and um really what you need to know here for for our story is that number one, the rest of the nations in Europe really worked hard to like nip that in the bud. Because if uh, republicanism can break out in one of the strongest monarchies in Europe, what could happen to all the rest of the monarchies? So hey, let's get a king put in right away as quickly as possible. And Britain was one of those nations, They, they jumped on the war against France very quickly. The other thing to know is that France had been a strong ally of the United States during the Revolutionary War. And while the United States wasn't really strong enough to uh, send significant support, even though they kind of promised to send significant support if war ever broke out, they were still okay with trading with France when a lot of other nations weren't. So it's interesting, France supported... The Americans. Well, yeah, because it would hurt the British. Right. Actually, to, to their detriment, um, the, the amount of money they spent supporting the American troops in the Revolutionary War, mainly uh, naval support, because the British Navy is uh, the most powerful, and uh, really without that naval support, the colonists probably would have lost the war. Um, they spent so much money supporting the Americans, though, that it, uh, the, the debt incurred. Uh, was one of the major factors leading to the revolution. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, the king had had supported this revolution and gone broke in the process. But the French settlers didn't share the sentiment. Mm, well, no, because the, the French settlers were no longer uh, politically French. They were now British subjects. Fair. Yeah. 1789 is also the first year that, you know, the Constitution goes into effect, the first year that uh, Congress sits. It's the first year that they technically have a president, Um, George Washington is elected for the first time. There's a lot of stuff that sort of happens in those six years between the end of the Revolutionary War and 1789, which is basically the United States getting their house in order, um, which, you know, kind of keeps the focus at home, uh, even though there's a lot of really big stuff going on across the Atlantic. In 1791, Quebec is split into upper and lower Canada. There's a couple of reasons for this. The main one, though, is that After the Revolutionary War, a lot of the loyalists, the the pro-British Americans, left the country, understandably, um, and rather than returning to Britain, which they've probably never been to in a lot of cases, they uh, emigrated to Canada. And politically, the French Canadians vastly outnumbered the uh, English Canadians, and so this split uh, allowed there to be two kind of co-equal provinces within canada and it allowed the english to have the majority in one of them so mm. that's where we see the roots of the modern province of ontario in canada it's basically set up as a loyalist haven the first uh lieutenant or sorry lieutenant governor of upper canada john grave simcoe uh is generally seen as a horrible monster in the united states because he uh conducted a, a raid on a on a Sleeping camp in the middle of the night during the Revolutionary War, which is not great, uh, I will admit. But generally, in Canada, he's seen as a as an all right guy. Um, now I'm
1: uh, now I'm thinking back to uh, a different episode we did on um, Vlad.
0: Oh, Vlad the Impaler. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, you know, just the the folk hero status. Sure, one can get for being a monster in in favor of one's own nation.
0: Sure. Well, no, I mean he he wasn't he doesn't have favorable status in in Canada because of the raid on the sleeping camp yeah Uh, no he he has it because he uh organized government in upper canada and uh with a focus on responsible government which is this idea that uh everyone should have a representative in an active government and vote directly for them. Uh, he did things like bring a focus on potentially creating like an elite class in, in contrast to the uh, very egalitarian uh, United States. And it didn't necessarily fly, but it was a little bit more in keeping with British values. He was trying to prove that that could work in a, a sort of a democratic context. He basically created the framework for uh, an independent nation within the Commonwealth of Britain. And and, and his work would go on to uh, support uh, both the the eventual government of Canada, as well as other colonies like, uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, he founded York, which would go on to become Toronto, the largest city in Canada. Uh, he also founded the city of London. Um, he abolished slavery in Upper Canada, even before the rest of Britain had abolished slavery. A little bit of a slap in the face to the United States. He did some like he did some okay stuff up here. Um, I feel bad for my Vlad the Impaler reference now. <laughs> does, does that necessarily forgive <laughs> the whole sleeping raid? You started with the sleeping raid. I'm, you know, Does it forgive the sleeping raid? No, not necessarily. <laughs> but my point is that people are complicated, and let's not turn too quickly to uh, caricature. Fair enough. He also wanted to create an Indian buffer state, it's his words, uh, between Upper Canada and the United States. He uh, had an uneasy alliance with a man named uh, Joseph Brandt, who you might know. Uh, or at least his name. Um, he was a, a Mohawk leader or Kenyankehaka is the proper name. That's another thing I found in a lot of these more recent Canadian, uh, topics is we don't use the right names for a lot of these, uh, tribes like at all. It's pretty bad actually. Joseph Brandt owned, uh, or, or rather his, his, uh, tribe owned, uh, a lot of, uh, the territory along the Grand River, um, In fact, I I wouldn't be surprised if at one point his tribe owned the land we're sitting on right now. Um, So that's another thing that's fun to know. Uh, But he worked with uh, Simcoe to try and see if they could work out some sort of buffer state because it worked in Simcoe's favor to keep the Americans at bay. It worked in uh, Brant's favor to have an independent uh, native nation. Uh, Brant would eventually give his name to Brantford and the, uh, the... Iroquois or Haudenosaunee or uh, reserve down that way is, is named after him. Hmm. Meanwhile, this Northwest Indian War is still going on. A lot of it's kind of raiding. The, the native population at this time was relatively small compared to the American population, and they couldn't really afford the uh, full-on pitched battles that the uh, American army was sort of ready for. It tended to be only attacks when it was in their favor. Um, they just couldn't uh, spare the men. But By 1794, disagreement had kind of broken out among the native leadership as to how best to proceed. They were kind of in an okay position, and some leaders were thinking, well, maybe we sue for peace now from a favorable position and try and get as many demands as we can. Other leaders were saying, we've got them on the ropes, let's keep this thing going uh, and drive out the Americans altogether. Unfortunately, uh, in August of 1794, there's a battle of, uh, it's called the Battle of Fallen Timbers, uh, in which there was a decisive American victory over Native troops. And it really broke the, the coalition that was fighting for the old Northwest. And this led to the withdrawal of uh, uh, British support for these troops. They'd been kind of feeding supplies and weapons to the, uh, the American tr- or to the, uh, to the native troops, uh, partially through this connection with, uh, with Joseph Brandt and Simcoe at this point, once, once that defeat came down, kind of went, this is dangerous to be supporting them because if they're, if the Americans ever find out that we're definitely supporting them militarily, uh, that could lead to the outbreak of war. Um, but if we don't support them enough, they won't be well-equipped enough to actually fight this war. Right. So they've been trying to tread this line all this time. The coalition is shattered. The leadership is in disarray after this defeat, which, you know, when you, when you look at the casualties and things like that, it's not a disastrous battle, but in terms of both uh, strategic position and sort of morale, it's devastating. The British withdraw and and the native leadership is forced to... Uh, sign a treaty with the with the Americans in 1795, the Treaty of Greenville. And this basically seeds more chunks of this old Northwest to direct American control. So it had been American territory under native control up until now. They had to give up any territory that had already been settled by Americans because it was just too expensive to resettle them anyways. <laughs> and they had to give up more territory in the... Um, Sort of the estimated value by the Americans uh, of of reparations for the battles, so they couldn't actually pay in cash money; they could pay in land. Jeez, mm-hmm. you're gonna notice a pattern developing here. Mm-hmm. 1799, uh, Napoleon takes control of France in a coup. There's a bit of a lull in fighting uh, 1802 to 1803, um, but really the British have been fighting for nearly 10 years against the french in europe and once that lull is over in 1803 they're going to be fighting until napoleon is defeated so the british military is very much occupied in europe at this point in time 1804 napoleon is crowned emperor this is not good for the british they're not happy about it at all (laughs) the war continues one of the biggest problems was this uh and it's, it's a thing that you and I talked about was the, the continental system, um, this idea that Napoleon traded exclusively within uh, Europe for all of his war material and really to keep all of the, the economy of France going to prevent or, or to keep the continental system a closed system. The British imposed uh, uh, embargoes on the entire continent of Europe, basically. They wouldn't allow trade out of Europe to try and throttle the French economy that's hard europe is big the coastline is very big it takes a lot of ships to do that and what's more important it takes a lot of sailors to do that the uh the british turned to something known as impressment which basically means um it's similar to conscription Hmm. uh you know how to sail a ship great you're in the navy now don't want to be in the navy too bad you are anyway congratulations and this was so that they could man enough ships to uh, continue the blockade of France. Yep. Now the British were having a little bit of a problem here because a lot of people didn't want to fight Napoleon. And one of the ways that you could get around this as a British sailor was to flee to the United States. They all speak English there, so it was really easy to to, to kind of you know settle in. Um, and now you didn't have to fight Napoleon anymore. The British hated this. See, here's the problem with a very, very new uh, nation like the United States versus a very, very old nation like Britain. There are very clear guidelines as to what makes you a British subject. You are born a subject of His Majesty. That's it. You are now a subject for life. What makes you an American citizen is a little bit murkier. There are some guidelines being born there helps. But really, they'll take British uh, settlers, um, especially ones that don't like Britain. That's kind of their, it's kind of on brand for that. (laughs) Right. Um, But here's the thing. There's no mechanism for renouncing your British uh, citizenship. Hmm. And so as far as Britain is concerned, anyone who defects to the United States is still a British subject. And this leads to Americans who are trading with France because they don't care about the blockade. They're also trading with Britain as well. But here's the thing if you're a, an American sailor, anytime you enter British waters, there's a chance that you could be seized by the Royal Navy. And if it's discovered that you are, in fact, Britain, uh, British, or even if they have a, a suspicion, then you they will are be British. a traitor officially, right? Yes. And your punishment is being impressed into the Royal Navy. <laughs> The very thing you were trying to avoid. Well, I mean, all of these all of these guys were serving in merchant marines, right? Like, they're serving on sailing vessels. Great, that's what we need is experienced sailors. So you're trying to bring this boat in. Could you just stop right there and just, just stay there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This blockade had really begun in earnest in 1807, and the impressment came along at the exact same time. This was... A problem for the United States. They, they were embarrassed by it. They couldn't protect their own citizens. They didn't have a big enough navy to fight off the Royal Navy, that's for sure. And they had people going overseas and being captured by a foreign power and pressed into military service by a foreign power. They were not happy. I'll mention one other thing before we really get into like the declaration itself. 1809. Um, sorry, 1808. A uh, Shawnee uh, leader named Tecumseh Founds a, a, a town known as Prophet's Town with his brother, uh, Tenskwatawa. They are preaching this message of basically native purity. Tecumseh is a strong political and, and military leader, and he, he, he's a very strong and passionate speaker. Uh, he's very good at rallying people to his side. Tenskwatawa, on the other hand, has, uh, has had visions. He's considered a prophet, hence the name Prophetstown. And what he has discovered through these sort of mystic visions is that basically everything brought by um, European settlers is evil and is 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 uh, corrupting uh, the native people. And so the only way forward for these people is to eschew all... European influences don't use guns don't drink alcohol uh, avoid Christianity turn back to the old ways and it's a powerful message a lot of people really latch on to this uh, especially after the the way that everything broke in the uh, uh, in the war there's a lot of people who are looking for leadership and 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 uh, these two brothers are really providing that leadership um,
1: with all the land that
0: was taken away mm-hmm. where could they even do this. There, there is still land in the old Northwest. Okay, and and that is where they're organizing. Um, this this uh, uh, Prophetstown was was in Ohio uh, or what would become Ohio. Tecumseh believed in intertribal uh, cooperation that they wouldn't become as strong as they need to be if they keep kind of keeping up this infighting. Um, that yes, they're not the same people, but the Europeans don't see them as uh, different. And so, what does the distinction matter until they can sort of protect their own borders? And it can matter to them, even if the Europeans are too dumb to see it. Um, In the meantime, they have a bigger enemy that they need to unite against. The British love this. 1808, they like right away in 1808, they approach Tecumseh and say, this is great. Let us support you against the United States. We have this idea for a buffer state. And Tecumseh goes, no, you guys keep abandoning us. Why would we trust you? In 1809, an American general, when William Henry Harrison, uh convinces one of the tribes uh in the old Northwest to sell three million acres of land. It's the the Miami. Tecumseh was furious. He told the leaders of the Miami that he was going to kill them. Um, so you know, he he may have had a way with words, he also had a temper. <laughs> um, he also told Harrison that this sale was invalid and that he needed to return it. Uh, he subscribed to this idea that actually originally came from uh, Brandt, that this land was owned in commune by all native bands and that all of them needed to agree in order to sell it. Right. And simply having a treaty with the Miami, it's known as the Treaty of Fort Wayne, um, simply having that treaty with the Miami wasn't enough for them to actually legally possess the land. It was invalid, as far as he was concerned. Um, Harrison obviously refused to to uh, listen to Tecumseh, and you know they they continued at loggerheads. Then in 1811, Tecumseh uh, goes away uh, trying to recruit more tribes to his cause. He's actually down in Alabama, recruiting a, a Muscogee uh, tribe. And while he's away, uh, Harrison takes the opportunity to bait Tenskwatawa into a battle. Uh, Tenskwatawa was even more hot headed than Tecumseh mm. and as much as he's seen as sort of a, a religious figure, his life before that had been quite rough. He had been a a a hard alcoholic and and uh the, the the day that he had his vision, he had actually drank so much that everyone thought he was dead, and he woke up as they were carrying him off to bury him. I see. Which may have informed some of his uh, beliefs about the evils of alcohol, but um, that doesn't necessarily make him wrong about some of his assessments of Europeans. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Um, Tensquadro was outraged because he had a bit of an inferiority complex Um, because, you know, by by many measures, uh, Tecumseh had had a better life than him. Um, He broke the ban on guns, bought a whole bunch of arms from the British and started agitating. Harrison... Baited them out of their position, and the uh, Battle of Tippecanoe, uh, November sixth, eighteen eleven, he uh, he routed the forces and burned profits down to the ground. Both Tenskwatawa and Tecumseh survived. Tenskwatawa managed to live through the battle, and Tecumseh was away recruiting. And right. when he heard, he was uh, bereaved and incensed. I think this is probably a good place to stop in terms of setting everything up. I know we've taken a lot of time to go over this timeline, but this stuff all really, really matters. And it's going to matter a lot more as we kind of get into the motivations of the major players. Um, I know it seems a little bit disconnected, but that's sort of the problem of the war of 1812. The reason that the British are fighting, this is not the same as the reason that the Americans are fighting it or the native tribes, um, or the Canadian, uh, uh, colonists they all have very very different reasons for being here and and what we've gone over so far is touching on a lot of those reasons right so i promise we are going to gather all of this together oh it's Uh, it's super interesting and until then we'll we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back back on hi 101 here with colin oliver hello and we just went over about uh 40 years of material maybe 50 years of material that uh i I feel like get skipped a lot other than maybe perhaps the uh the american revolution that one gets some attention but a lot of this other stuff really doesn't get talked about that much and it's uh it's a shame because it's interesting stuff it's just there's so much other stuff happening in the west at this point in time with the french revolution and whatnot right (laughs) it kind of gets overshadowed to some extent yeah at the the time and historically yeah and I, i think i think in a lot of ways the uh the British, even even in this period, would uh, completely agree with this assessment, because as far as they were concerned, the idea that the situation in, United, in the United States or in, the, in North America overall was degenerating wasn't really on their radar. I mean, they're, they're busy fighting Napoleon here. And I'm going to keep saying that over the course of this topic, but it's really important to understand that they don't really care that much about North America at this point in time north america is valuable to the british mainly for primary resources it's a great source of timber the furs are still valuable but they're kind of winding down anyways so you know the business that the um what would become the hudson's bay company was doing at this point in time is you know it's it's not it's not the most crucial thing but it's mainly it's it's mainly an economic boon to the to great britain anything else you know it's nice to keep the United States in check, but it's not one of their primary goals. They've got bigger fish to fry on the continent. Right. Napoleon. We're talking about Napoleon here. There's Napoleon That's... happening. <laughs> Let's wind back a little bit to 1807. There's a uh, a ship, the USS Chesapeake. It's a uh, mid-sized frigate. It's not terribly large. It's uh, It's sailing off the coast of Virginia. And... On the 22nd of June, 1807, a British ship, HMS Leopard, sails up on it. Now, the, uh, the Chesapeake was kind of, it wasn't really fit out for battle. It was carrying supplies on the deck, so the decks weren't cleared, which is bad for fighting. The hmm. guns weren't loaded, which is also bad for fighting. And the Leopard saw the Chesapeake and opened fire. Uh, full broadside. The Chesapeake managed to fire one gun before surrendering. The leopard was looking for British defectors. This is the impressment that we've been talking about. Right. Generally, they would go after merchant marines who would, you know, sort of uh, surrender without a fight because they couldn't really fight that much. And um, generally, this didn't happen in U.S. waters. This time it did. Three U.S. soldiers were killed. 18 were wounded. The, The Chesapeake was badly damaged and the uh the commander james barron would be court-martialed for his failure to defend uh his ship didn't sound very fair no but that's not necessarily how court-martials work either uh you kind of have one job as a commander of a ship and he, he did not do it right the british managed to find uh four sailors that they claimed were british uh subjects a couple of them were kind of iffy uh, really, only one was definitely a, a British subject. Eventually, that one would be hanged. The other three were just impressed into the Navy. Wait, they hanged the
1: Definitely one? British one. Well, huh. because they
0: could prove that he had defected. Yeah, okay. The United States was outraged at this. Understandably so. I, I don't mean to make that sound uh, unreasonable. It was a, a massive slight. The foreign minister at the time was actually James Monroe, who had be president and he demanded uh the return of the seamen and the cessation of impressment and a whole bunch of blustery stuff right but really they just it was a matter of honor and they needed that somehow solved yeah the british basically put out a a a declaration saying like no we're allowed to impress our citizens or our subjects and they were subjects so um, have you heard of this guy napoleon As far as they were concerned, this whole Chesapeake, uh, uh, it was called the Chesapeake Leopard Affair in, uh, in the United States, as far as they were concerned, eh, this was a standard patrol. This was nothing out of the ordinary. They didn't care. Oh, the United States is mad. Okay. Well, whatever. They're just a bunch of upstarts. Anyways, they will probably be back in British control in no time. Anyways, <laughs> this revolution's a fad. Um, <laughs> No, they they, they really had very little respect for the United States at this point in time. And and, the United States was struggling for recognition on the world stage. And they're very, very young. And all of this stuff is lining up to make them very, very angry. They hate all of this. Thomas Jefferson, who's president at the time, decides that uh, the best um, reaction for this is to call for a full embargo uh, of American uh, exports. And not just to Britain, but to, to France as well. The mm. thinking here being that if they cut down on imports and exports, that it'll help to stimulate the American economy, that it'll hamper the British economy somewhat because they have been buying food from the Americans, seeing as the entire continent is under French control, more or less at this point. And some, uh, some old school protectionism going oh, on here. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Classic. Yeah. And so this all goes into into effect as the Embargo Act of December 22nd, 1807. Um turns out the British don't care that much. Um there's kind of a loophole in the embargo act as written that basically they can just ship everything to Halifax and then sell it through Canada. <laughs> and the uh the border between what what would now be uh Quebec and Vermont is just lousy with trade. And here's the thing, the United States is not exactly like a cohesive body at this point in time either. There's a uh, fairly strong uh faction in the sort of New England area, they're from the party known as the Federalists that were agitating for stronger centralization of government and a, a working relationship with Britain, whereas the the further south states uh, tended towards uh, a party called the Democratic Republicans. That is not going to be the Democrats or the Republicans, it's very confusing. Um, But the Democratic-Republicans favored uh, even less relationship with Britain and sort of a decentralized states' rights sort of picture of what the union was going to look like. So yeah, there's there's certain things that the United States has kind of had in place since the get-go. The federalists, or the, the states who tended to be more federalist up in the Northeast, are happy to continue trading across the border, even illicitly, with Canada. And so it's not really hurting them that or as much as it could be if they were putting the embargo fully in place. They closed the loopholes on this act. They shut down trade even more. Generally, it just hurts everybody in the United States, and the British are kind of like, okay, we'll find other places to buy food from, mainly still from Canada, and there's still a lot of smuggling going on across the borders. Um, That's a really hard thing to crack down on. But this sort of... This sort of injury to national identity is very, very important to a lot of Americans. It's, it's hard being in a new country. Like, it's very, very hard. It's not an easy thing to establish an entirely new nation. And they don't really have a roadmap to go off of. They're sort of the first in a lot of ways. I mean, there's certainly been new states founded over the years as uh, sections of countries break off and, you know, things are split between two or three sons by kings and all of that. But it's not the same as starting a brand new nation. In a lot of ways, France is following America's lead through the revolution. I mean, they take it a very different direction, but, uh, you know, they're, they're really the only roadmap that they have. There's a lot of members of the, the U.S. government known as war hawks. They, they get labeled warhawks. war hawks. They're people who feel that the best way to really establish themselves is a second war of independence, basically. Let's go with Britain again. Let's do this one more time. This time we'll do it right. Um, we'll, we'll prove ourselves. And this time, Britain can't ignore us like this. They can't keep tra- treating us as a secondary nation. The slight from Britain, yes, is partially because of the political situation from the uh, the revolution. Again, I, I would like to point your attention to the fact that they are dealing with Napoleon at this point in time. It's taking a lot of their attention. <laughs> there was also this growing sentiment that there's a almost a... a, a a matter of destiny that the United States would own all of the Americas, all of the Americas, North and South, everything would be theirs. And here, here's where some of the motivation gets a little bit unclear because when you talk to Canadians, they'll tell you that part of the reason that the war of 1812 happened was that the United States wanted to take over Canada and roll it into the United States. And the answer to that is kind of right. It's not, not because of that. A lot of Americans saw Canada as like a natural fit for the United States. I mean, they're, they're British colony. We were British colonies up until recently, you know, what's stopping us. Right. In fact, um, by, by the time that the war breaks out in 1812, um, Jefferson, uh, refers to the invasion of Canada as a mere matter of marching. All it'll take (laughs) is getting boots on the ground and they'll welcome us with open arms. Right. Because that's how they saw Canada, even though it was chock full of loyalists. Like
1: specifically, people who stayed loyal to Britain mm-hmm. moved to
0: Canada. Yeah, it's it's kind of, kind of the reason that Upper Canada exists. Did we talk about the the naming convention on Upper and Lower Canada? Okay. The the uh, the uh, the Great Lakes flow out into the atlantic ocean through the the st lawrence river and so the the naming convention for upper and lower canada is based on their position on the st lawrence river Hmm. so the upper canada even though like it's further south than lower canada it's up river from lower canada so that's yeah it's kind of a interesting a weird convention but that's where it comes from um anyways at at least upper canada because they're, they're they're english speaking were seen as a natural fit they they you know, welcome American troops with open arms, et cetera, et cetera, all the the cliches. The Americans didn't necessarily want to go to war specifically to get Canada, though. I think that's flattering ourselves a little bit much as Canadians. Um, It was seen as a nice perk, maybe. But really the issue here is that they had tried diplomacy against Britain, didn't work. They had tried economic sanctions, didn't work. Where do you go as a nation state in negotiations with a foreign power when those steps don't work. Warfare is kind of the next step. They were hoping to force Britain back to the table on these economic issues that they were having problems with, mainly impression and the the trade embargoes that were hurting the economy so badly. If they got Canada out of the deal, so much the better. There's another accidental naval engagement. I say accidental, kind of. You know, scare quotes, scare quotes. It's known as the Little Belt Affair, sixteenth uh, of May, eighteen eleven. Um, basically, what happens here is that uh, the USS President, American ship, takes uh, the HMS Little Belt, a, a, a British ship, for a much bigger ship than it is. It's a it's a little uh, war sloop, so it's 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 maybe a third of the size. It's not even a third of the size as the as the President, and has maybe a third as many guns. It's, it's much smaller. The president thinks it's much bigger than it is. There's some miscommunication. There's a lot of identify yourself. No, you identify yourself. Well, I asked first. No, I asked first. Right. And then the two commanders saying that each, you know, the other commander shot first. And how it actually shakes out is a little bit unclear. What matters is that the president very badly beats the little belts in a naval engagement. The general U.S. sentiment here is awesome finally we're sticking it to the british like i mean they, they they won they won handily right like there there was 11 killed 21 injured uh on on the british side versus one injured on the president it, it was it was not even close to fair and the british commanders basically said like why did you attack a much smaller ship like why would you do that and it was kind of like doesn't matter we won it um, <laughs> and and you have to understand that that uh sort of inferiority complex that the united states has at this point in time for that to make any sense right it's not even necessarily brashness it's the it's the first win that they've had they've been harassed by the british navy for so long now that anything feels good meanwhile the british are going like these guys are unstable what's going on here (laughs) have they heard of napoleon we've got other stuff going on (laughs) you know the ship limps back up to halifax and is repaired and whatever moves on but it's this idea that even after defeating them in this, like, one-on-one ship uh, action, it's still not... They're not getting the satisfaction that they want, but, like, that tasted really good. Right. And maybe this is what they need to actually get the satisfaction that they deserve from Britain. Tecumseh, meanwhile, is still kind of fighting his war. It's 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 uh, much less organized, but... Um, He's still trying to make something work. It's just they don't have this centralized town. I mean, uh, um, Prophetstown had over a thousand warriors living in this one town. It was a relatively formidable force. This sort of guerrilla warfare that they have to drop back to is, is much less effective. But they are, you know, after after Tensquadowa broke the ban on weapons, the British were happy to sell the weapons to, to Tecumseh. And... There was this very strong sense by American settlers that these are British weapons that were being massacred with. Like, mm. they're native warriors, but those are British weapons. And there are stories that start going around. That there's British provocateurs working within these native bands, inciting them to violence against American settlers. Like they needed a reason. Yeah, that's kind of my take on it as well. Um, yeah. Because like normally they would have just rolled over and given them all of their land <laughs> under normal circumstances and just not done anything about it. But Those pesky Brits are getting up in there, giving them weapons, <laughs> telling them to attack us. What do they think they're doing? This is all Britain's fault. This is where I, I really look at the situation from everybody's point of view and go, we're, we're talking at cross purposes here, right? The British barely care about what's going on other than the context of the Atlantic in, uh, and how it fits into the Napoleonic Wars. The Canadians, they just kind of want to live their lives. They want nothing to do with the Americans. In fact, they kind of are a little bit afraid of the Americans. But French Canadians uh, just want to maintain their way of life. Uh, English Canadians are trying to sort of refound this idea of civilized English uh, or british uh uh colonization of north america right there's there's this split between uh you know the the very militarized nova scotia and there's there's uh um we haven't really talked about new brunswick but there's there's settlements in new brunswick as well the the maritimes are fairly um militarized and then you have the the sort of uh loyalist outpost of of um upper canada that just really want to go along with their lives and work on this new society kind of founded in the last 10, 20 years. They want nothing to do with it. They're a little bit afraid of the Americans. Maybe that buffer state wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for them. They don't necessarily trust the natives that much, but that's more of a lack of contact than it is anything else. Most native bands or, or a lot of native bands had moved out of that area into the old Northwest because of this promise of, um, independence, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, not to say all had left. I mean, there were, there were a number that were still living in upper Canada, but you know, it, it was much less than it had been under the French, for example. And then you have the Americans and what they're seeing is a slight to national pride, not national honor, a major economic and trade issue, uh, a major issue of a foreign power, basically kidnapping their citizens and uh along with it uh a belief that that same foreign power is inciting violence against your uh your citizens uh via a third party this is what leads uh this is what leads james madison to declare war on britain when put in those when, when put in that context it kind of makes some sense a little bit he has a duty to defend his nation that's kind of what being a sovereign political entity is all about and they had gone through all the 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 standard steps that one needs to go through before reaching warfare uh unsuccessfully the united states didn't i I don't want to say they didn't care about the napoleonic wars but that was we're, we're in a period of of american politics where um There's very much an isolationist uh, element in terms of, listen, we're not European. Like we were European, sure, but we're not now. And what happens in Europe is none of our business. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the Monroe Doctrine. Um, The Monroe Doctrine is we have dominion. It it, it was a military doctrine uh, and political doctrine in the United States um, that basically stated, uh, you know, we have we have dominion over North and South America, yes, but also, and this is the flip side of the Monroe Doctrine that a lot of people forget about: we should specifically stay out of stuff that isn't within North and South America. That's not our business. Hmm. So let's limit our our influence, other than in a very like limited uh, trade-based way with foreign powers as much as possible. That's not our problem. I'm sorry, Napoleon is rampaging across all of Europe literally right now, but. That's not our problem, and if he wants to buy stuff from us, great. I'm happy to sell. and yet they declared war against a European nation, well, yes, yeah, because that European nation was infringing on their sovereign rights within North America, right right They were hampering uh the United States' ability to trade also, as far as they were concerned, they were inciting violence against american uh settlers right the The number of perspectives that we're coming at here are, are very very different and and what you know the reasons that all of this stuff is happening feels very different to everyone involved the british are going like oh come on like we're busy right now like we don't want to deal with this we don't want to we don't have time for this You're right the canadians are going i guess they want canada canada's great they must want us we've been worried about this since the revolution they're finally coming for us here, here it is The natives are just fighting for survival at this point. They just want something that is theirs for once. Like, come on. And the old Northwest is seen in a lot of ways as the last holdout of that, because if that's taken from them, well, there was the Louisiana Purchase already earlier in the 19th century. There is land from the East Coast to the Rockies. If they can hold that old northwest, maybe they can actually establish an independent state. If they roll over the uh the old northwest, what's stopping them from keeping going all the way to the west coast and displacing every single native tribe along the way? The answer as we know with our 2020 hindsight <laughs> is not much. Yeah. Uh there's a few other attempts to establish uh what they would call Indian territories, but uh, inevitably, they would be taken over by settlers who just really liked the look of that. It, did you see that land? <laughs> it's very good land. What are we doing, giving it to the natives? It's it's horrific. Yeah. So this conflict is happening. Everyone has different goals for it. No one's really sure why the other people are involved, or rather, have very skewed ideas of why the others are involved. Right? The British are, or sorry, the Americans are looking at it and seeing. Uh, the natives who are uh, being ungrateful, basically, and hostile. They're seeing the British who are intentionally uh, defying American honor and and quashing American trade. And they're seeing and inciting the, mm-hmm, and inciting violence. Yes. Yeah. And they're looking at the Canadians and going, why aren't you guys Americans again? Like you should be Americans by now. Basically, the Canadians are going, uh listen. Yeah, I don't know about these natives, but that seems like an American problem to me. It used to be our land. You guys took it from us. It's your problem now, right? They're looking at the British going like, well, you know, there's a couple detachments around They're They're protecting us as best they can. And they're looking at the Americans and going, they are crazy aggressive right now. What's going on? Like every every time you take it and look from one party's perspective at what everyone else is doing here, it kind of doesn't quite make sense. Yeah, And it, it comes off wrong. And I think a lot of what happens from now on is this mismatch of, of perspectives and intentions. The funny thing about declaring a war in the year 1812 is that it takes a really long time across the Atlantic with news that war <laughs> is broken out. It's officially declared by the United States uh, 18th of June, 1812. And it's actually the first time that the United States officially declared war on everybody or on anyone as a, as a new nation. So there's that. It didn't arrive, word didn't arrive in London until uh, July 29th, <laughs> over a month. Yeah. Ironically, there was a new British Prime Minister in uh, in June of 1812. Um, the previous Prime Minister had actually been assassinated. Uh, this new Prime Minister favored uh, de-escalation of tensions with the United States. He kind of felt that if things kept going the way they were, well, something bad might happen. <laughs> and Two days before the United States declared war, he actually issued a proclamation to suspend the the, the trade embargo on the United States. Oh. So he was looking to uh, uh, release tension, just slightly too late. Yeah, problem is uh, the the ships passed each other on the on the way to <laughs> you know let everyone know. Yeah. The commander uh, of the British forces in Upper Canada, maybe you've heard of him, a man named Major General Isaac Brock. Uh, He's one of the very few names that Canadians will remember from this conflict. He got word of uh, uh, the war quite a bit sooner than the British Parliament did, uh, for obvious reasons, and decided not to wait for for command, which is interesting. Mm. That's not the kind of thing that would normally happen at that point in time, but he decided that time was probably of the essence because it's possible that the United States might not necessarily wait for an official response from Britain in order to begin operations. He readied troops immediately. He issued orders for an offensive action without waiting for approval, and uh, the first military action of of the War of 1812 took place on July 17th, so uh, a full 12 days before Parliament actually heard that there was a war. He ordered British detachment to uh, attack um, Fort Mackinac, it's uh on Mackinac Island. It's uh in present-day Michigan. It's right at the very top of the mitten. And it's a it's a strategically valuable uh uh position because it controls trade through the the Great Lakes. Um I would I would encourage anyone not familiar with the Great Lakes to maybe look up a map of the Great Lakes and maybe look at the size of the Great Lakes. I I feel like it sounds ridiculous to have naval actions on some lakes until you realize that Lake Erie, where the majority of the naval action is going to take place, is about the size of Switzerland. Like, it's it's really, like, guys, if you're from Europe and you don't know about the Great Lakes, look up how big they are. They are very, very, very large. And the idea of having full sailing ships on these lakes is not, it's not unreasonable in the least. So, yeah, having having a, a detachment at Fort Mackinac was was going to be strategically important because it controlled access uh, via, well, I was going to say sea, but via lake, um, to the old Northwest, where Britain had some potentially very valuable allies in the native Confederacy. Word had not reached Fort Mackinac yet that there was a war on. Oh, boy. The British... Uh, Landed on the island, set up a cannon, fired one warning shot, and the troops were so confused and scared that they surrendered immediately. That's how the War of 1812 starts. So,
1: uh, seems like Brock acted a little bit impulsively. Mm -hmm. And that if he'd waited, maybe things would have
0: not escalated. I don't think that's true. I think that the United States was very much ready for warfare. Yeah, right. Um they they did not they did, I would not say they were uh ready in the traditional sense of of warfare. They had not uh you know trained and maneuvered and and called up all the troops that they were going to need to call up. Um but psychologically or politically they were definitely ready. They they were prepared to take military action in Canada.
1: I guess I more wonder if the trade embargo being lifted had reached them if they would have reconsidered.
0: Well, that that was the funny thing because the British ended up holding uh news of the trade embargo being lifted after finding out that the uh the United States had declared war. The the word didn't reach uh um Canada until or or Nova Scotia I should say until uh, I believe it was August of 1812. Um so you know, Halifax knew that there was a war on. And then they received this word that, hey, we should lift those embargoes. And they went, maybe we should see if they want to double check that one. Right. Maybe, they might want to rethink that one. <laughs> and so like, yeah, they would find out later that this trade embargo had lifted, but the war was on and impressment had not uh, stopped.
1: Right. And, and that was going to be a sticking point regardless.
0: Yeah. And and there's kind of a it's kind of a point of no return in declaring war where you kind of have to do a little bit of more stuff before you can just say, just kidding or canceled as like the president of the United States. You have to achieve some sort of objective. Like that, that's the thing about war. You don't say like, okay, war is on now. And then, okay, war is off now. You have stated objectives for the war, right? Otherwise it's not approved by Congress. And the sort of stated objectives of this war were, you know, to stop impressment was one of them. And until impressment stopped, it didn't really matter that the trade embargo had, had been lifted. And besides there was this uh, Warhawk, fantasy of, of holding at minimum Upper Canada after the war. They wanted some territorial gains out of this war just to show that it meant something. Because without holding that, how could you hold the, uh, the British to their promises to lift the trade embargo and not expect someone to come along in six months and say, you know, just kidding, embargo's back on. You look like a fool. Right. So once war is declared, it's not quite that simple anymore. Yeah, the, the United States, in terms of their preparedness, this is the other thing I want to really impress about the War of 1812. It was not a big war. The populations that are involved, the armies that are involved, the battles that are involved, they're very, very, very small, much smaller than I was ever led to believe on you know class trips to Fort Erie and things like that. The U.S. had about 12,000 professional troops at the beginning of the war. They also called up 450,000 militiamen. Um, which was about the entire population of British North America at the time. (laughs) British North America encompassing, you know, the two Canadas, the, you know, the various other uh, um, colonies and the United States would have a population of 7.2 million or so much bigger problem with the militias is they generally don't want to fight outside of their home state. They're also very, very poorly trained uh, the British, on the other hand, have six thousand regulars stationed in uh, in the Canadas uh, and and in well, especially Nova Scotia. It's it's very heavily fortified. They have uh, about a thousand militia, but they also have ten thousand provincial regulars. These are like the the uh, the Canadian soldiers that you'll hear about in only Canada ever. Uh, you know <laughs> you might remember things about them wearing like green tunics so they blend into the trees and the other kind of garbage grade seven history stuff that you learn. Right but 10,000 is not nothing. Yeah. And in general, they're much better trained than the American militia, much better trained than the American militia. Um, That is not a point of national pride. This is a fact proven by many battles, right? The British army are in top form. This is possibly the height of British military power. This is them in the middle of the Napoleonic war, this is a this is a token detachment that they put there because they thought that 6000 men could probably hold canada against the entirety of the united states the native troops ah we don't have real numbers on them population of the old northwest was probably below 100,000 when this all happens um and that's the entire population not the fighting population right. so we never really get firm numbers there some support the united states some more generally support the british um but we'll never really have good numbers there again it's all hit and fade stuff for supporting uh other regular troops things like that so yeah people are ready but not entirely ready and this surprise attack on mackinac is is it, it kind of comes out of nowhere and um brock's uh commander um george provost chief lieutenant general in in uh, or sorry uh, lieutenant general uh commander-in-chief of all of british north america He generally believes that the most uh, successful tactic is going to be play a defensive game, just wait it out, this will all go away. That being said, he doesn't disapprove of Brock's actions. It is a very, very successful action, it is a very key fort to take, and Brock is generally going to take that momentum and he's going to... Uh, continue running with this so now that we've got the war kind of kicked off and we've talked about kind of various national positions and things like that i think now is probably a good place to take a quick break and next time when we get back to it we'll really get into the war proper talk about some of the major events and then uh once we're finished maybe talk about the uh um national memories of the war of 1812 which i think is almost more interesting than the battles in some ways sounds good The simple version of why the War of 1812 began is that Britain was unwilling or unable to listen to the trade concerns of the United States, opting for naval policies that favored success in the Napoleonic Wars over the demands of a very new and comparatively less important nation. The United States, plagued by what they saw as unwarranted attacks by native warriors and frustrated by Britain's deaf ears, decided to get Britain's attention by attacking the British colony of Canada. As we've seen so far, though, the diverse perspectives, experiences, and goals of the parties involved in this conflict have made a relatively minor war into something much more complicated. Next time, we'll talk about the progress of the war, as well as its abrupt ending, and the various ways it is remembered, or in some cases, not. That episode will be up on the 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.